Welcome to the Restore Church Sermons Podcast. We're so glad you joined us here today. We hope that through this message you are encouraged, challenged, and strengthened. If you want to know more about Jesus, Restore Church, or have any questions, please head to restorechurch.com.au. Welcome, good to see you this morning on this cold, wet day. Who's excited about moving carpet? Yes! Fantastic. Be awesome. Zach, could you pop the slide up? Thanks, mate. Um, I'm not looking at any particular Bible verse today. I'm kind of talking about um, the Bible. And um, I'm talking about miniaturizing dinosaurs and traveling by fish this morning. Um, obviously, that's, it's, it'd be clear why I'm doing that. Um, the, the reason I'm doing it is because I want to talk about, actually, I want to talk about the Bible today. And the reason I want to talk about the Bible is because, um, as you know, I've been talking about the last couple of weeks, this kind of debate that's occurring in Australia right now. I thought I'd said enough on that until I realised that um, we're not actually talking about, in my opinion, one of the most important things we Christians could be talking about uh, in regards to this debate, and that is where we get our beliefs from. Um, And so if we're going to argue about not only our right to hold our beliefs, but to publicly profess our beliefs, we, we might want to be clear about how we determine what those beliefs actually are. And I don't actually think that we are good at doing that or having conversations about that. So I want to kind of get the ball rolling on that. Not that I'm not going to do a series or anything like that, but I want to, I want to open this particular can of worms. So as this debate continues to unfold, we're positioned to be able to have grown-up conversations about it. Is that okay? All right. So, the reason I've called it this is really because of two stories. A number of years ago, um, in this very church, some of you would have been here for this, but I preached a sermon on Jonah called It's Not About the Fish, right? And uh, at the end of of that sermon, um, and, and the reason I did that was because I really wanted to say, look, you know, sometimes we get hung up on things that are really not the point of the story. When you read the story of Jonah, it is about how God sends this guy to his absolute mortal enemies, the Assyrians, with the message that God loves them and wants them to repent because he wants to redeem them. And the story of Jonah is about how do you feel about going to the people that have hurt you more than anything in the world? Because the Assyrians did hurt the Israelites a lot, really badly. How do you feel about going to people who have done that to you and telling them God loves them and wants them to repent? You would do what Jonah did and go the opposite direction, yes? Okay, but that's the point, right, of Jonah. I said, so it's not about the fish. And I finished the sermon and right at the end, someone yelled out, Adrian, scientists have proved that men can live inside a fish for three days. I'd known this person for a long time and I understood where they were coming from and because, and I'm not, I'm not belittling her, because for her in her worldview, her scheme of things, if everything in the Bible isn't literally as it says, then it all begins to fall apart for her very quickly. So I understood where she was coming from. The other story I want to uh, talk to you about was then coming across an interview that was done with some pastors who are what we call young earth creationists. What I mean by that is that they take the age of the earth from the chronology and timeline of the Bible. So it makes the earth round about just over 6,000 years old. They also believe in an absolute, down to to the punctuation, 
um, interpretation, literal interpretation of Genesis. So literally six 24-hour days of creation. Now, if you, you kind of think about this, what it does is it puts man and dinosaurs living at the same time on the earth. Okay, you with me so far? So someone asked these guys a question, well, what about the flood? How did Noah get dinosaurs onto the ark? Their response was literally, God miniaturized them. There are ways of reading the Bible where you just paint yourself into a corner, yeah? You really do. Now, I'm not having a go at anyone because these are sincerely held beliefs. People desperately and deeply trying to navigate what they see written in these pages and to be able to explain them in some way. Sometimes we do better than <laughs> sometimes we do better than that though, okay? But there are other things that we could take that aren't as kind of abstract or, or far as far out there. What about just things like this? I mean, if you look up 1 Samuel 15:33, you don't have to do this now, but I'm just saying this is an example where God says to uh, Joshua, now go and attack the Malachites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Don't spare them. Put to death the men and the women, the children and the infants. We know that that's not an isolated text. We know there are a number of texts in the Bible where God commands his people, seems to command his people, to kill other people, even commands genocide, yes? To actually go and wipe out an entire race of people, like the Amalekites. There are plenty of examples of that. There are other examples in recent history where we know that the Bible has been used to justify slavery, yes? The subjugation of women, all sorts of manner of evil. What do we do with that? How we un understand and reconcile those things, especially with what we see of God as revealed in the person of Jesus? How do we reconcile all of that stuff? Do we believe it is applicable today? And if we don't believe it's applicable today, then how do we explain that? How do we rationalise that? And as I said, why I'm telling you this, because right now this debate is going on about our right to not only hold, but publicly profess our beliefs as we see them in the Bible. My issue, as I said, is that if we're going to do that, then we need to be very clear that we need to be very good at handling what it is we actually think this book says because we're taking a public stand on this type of stuff. So if we don't find ourselves handling it well, we might find ourselves, paint, as I said, painting ourselves into corners, twisting ourselves into knots, defending the indefensible and not having good reasons for why we do and don't believe half the stuff that we do and don't believe. And this is in part why, and this is a shameless plug for the pop-up group that we're doing, we are doing this pop-up group called The Bible Tells Me So, how defending scripture has made us unable to read it, that Heather and I are going to be running this group over a couple of, uh, over the term, to help us dig deeper into how we are to handle this book. We might think that we've got it mastered, but let me tell you, we don't. And you don't need a university education to be able to do that either, or a theology degree. Anyone can do it, but there are some things we need to understand in order to do that really well. So when people say we need to stand up for what the Bible teaches, <laughs> my first response is, according to whom? When you say we need to stand up for what the Bible teaches, according to whom? According to that particular theology, according to that particular teacher, according to that particular system of thought, whose interpretation are we going to be listening to? 
Because the idea that, that we just pick up the Bible and we just read it and we just say what it says, because it's that self-evident, okay, is just fantasy. It doesn't actually happen. Some big assumptions are being made about when, about, um, when people say, we just need to believe the Bible. Or you either believe the Bible or you don't. Because the reality is we don't all agree what this book says. And it's not a new phenomenon. As long as the Bible has been around, there have been arguments about what should be included in it, what should be left out of it, how to understand it, how to interpret it, what it all means. And the fact that there are 33,000 and counting different Christian denominations should give us an indication that we don't all interpret this book the same way, yes? And secondly, that we're rubbish at dealing with our differences when it comes to it, yes? Because our knee-jerk response is to just go and start another church. It's mental, okay? Absolutely mental. We should be grown up enough to be able to have these grown-up discussions, yes? And you know I'm quite passionate about being able to talk about things and not just react to one another. Everyone interprets the Bible. I have friends, fundamental conservative friends, who say, I don't interpret the Bible, I just tell you what it says. So I say, okay, so when I come to your church, I expect to be greeted with a holy kiss by everyone, you included. Oh, we don't do that, why not? The Bible says in the New Testament, so let's not just wave it away and go, oh, that's Old Testament. This is New Testament. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I want my holy kiss. <laughs> I do not want my holy kiss. You know I don't even like hugs. And when the minute I mention that, everyone wants to hug me. Right. Stay away. I have a very contagious disease. <clears throat> and halitosis. There we go. All right. But when I say to him, well, why isn't that applicable? Well, that's a cultural thing. Okay. What else is cultural? There's no systematic way of determining what's in and what's out. You understand what I'm saying? This, what it seems to me is that suits our purposes, so that's in. We don't quite like that, so that's out. That's cultural. That's time-bound. We don't need to worry about that sort of thing. Every single one of us interprets the Bible. The only question is, how do we interpret the Bible? And we're going to look at that right at the end um, to show how we're going to do that. Now, I don't think we'll ever get to the point where we'll learn to master the Bible and see everything the same way. I don't think that's the point either. Because I think the, the very nature of the Bible invites us into a constant wrestle with what God is trying to say through us in that. Okay? I really believe that. But we can learn to handle it better. And we need to because I think the mission of the church is actually at stake. People are not scrutinising us anymore on our style. It used to be that, you know, were we hip enough? Did we have enough lights? Did we have enough fog machines? Were we relevant enough? They were, they were the issues that, not anymore, it's got nothing to do with style, it's everything to do with substance. People are evaluating the church, both internally and externally, on its beliefs. That's why the biggest, fastest growing church today is the Church of the Nuns and Duns. Because they are not able to reconcile a lot of what they see in Scripture with their own personal understanding of things. And they're being told by people, it's black or it's white. You either believe it all or you don't believe anything. You submit to it all or you don't. And they're saying, well, in that case, I won't submit to it at all. And there's no room for them to have a more nuanced approach to understanding this actually very complex book. 
But I want us to understand that there is more to how the Bible actually works than the way it's being posited by some people. And because this is such a minefield and open to such misinterpretation and misunderstanding, I want to state my position very clearly so no one walks away from here today saying Adrian's a heretic, right? You can think it, but you can't say it, okay? I believe that the Bible is 100% inspired by God. The Bible says it itself. All Scripture is God-breathed, yes? 2 Timothy 3.16. It is inspired by God. I believe it is authoritative, okay? I believe that we, we actually, that's part of our belief statement as a church. We believe in the authority of Scripture. We, we are committed to understanding it and bringing our lives and our mission and our way we function as a church into line with what we understand Scripture to be saying. So it is inspired and it is authoritative. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I am not questioning either of those tenets at all. I believe that. But I believe there is a better way of understanding what that actually means and how that actually works rather than just picking out verses cherry-picking out verses, laying them on the table and saying, there it is in black and white, that's it, that's the end of it. I believe the Bible works best and helps us live the life God wants us to live when we respect it for what it is and we read it as intended. So let me start with the first bit of that statement, the respect for what it is, and I want to make two very quick points on that. The first is that the human, the, the, the human, the Bible is both a human and a divine work, Yeah divine and human. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, yes? Okay, the Bible is God and it is man as well. The Bible is the word of God in the words of men, but it is that second bit, the words of men, that we really need to grapple with. Because some people take the position that to believe that the Bible is inspired by God means that the Bible is precisely 100% unadulteratedly conveyed in the way that God wanted to have it conveyed, right down to the punctuation. And to quibble with that is actually to quibble with God. To that, I want to say that is rubbish, okay? Let's start with the easy bit. Let's leave aside the fact that the people who were writing this stuff were never under the, um, under the impression that they were writing the Bible in the first place. Do you understand that? A lot of them were just recording things their interactions with God, what they felt God was saying to them. They didn't know it was going to end up in a leather-bound book in our churches. They had no idea. So let's just leave that bit aside anyway, okay? And let's just start with the fact that it is a combination of oral communication, multiple manuscripts that were written by a number of people that were then copied and edited by multiple people over a very long period of time that have gone into compiling this final product. And if I showed you my Greek New Testament which incidentally was my pickup line with Heather. Um, <laughs> do you want to come up and look at my Greek New Testament? Um, yeah, I know. She's, she still gets wobbly at the knees when I say it. Um, it <laughs> it's just full of footnotes. And the reason it's full of footnotes is because it'll go... Yeah, well, that sentence and that verse and that particular word was taken from this manuscript and that word was taken from this manuscript and that word was taken from this manuscript. The idea being that there are lots and lots of different manuscripts and some of them are more reliable than others because we know this one was written closer to the event. We know this one's probably 100 years old. This one got edited by about 25 people in between, etc., etc., etc. So it's a way of saying, look, we, we think this is about as accurate as we can actually get this type of thing. And don't forget, every Bible is, we have is a translation of something. The Old Testament is a translation 
of ancient Hebrew. The New Testament is a translation of Koine Greek. And don't forget that some of the stuff in the Bible, especially the Gospels where Jesus is speaking, Jesus is speaking in Aramaic, it's being recorded in Greek and then translated into English. Are you with me? You've got to understand that not everything's going to come across in a precise, pristine fashion when we start to do that, yes? Even if we take modern languages too, sometimes there are just no equivalents in English for the words, okay, that other languages have. And so the best we can do is come up with an approximation from that. For that, so the Bible is no different in the way it has developed from that. There are So we have to respect that there are no definitive translations. None of them are bulletproof. Now, I know, so, I know that particularly the conservative people will go, well, the King James is, because everyone knows that God speaks in Shakespearean English, right? <laughs> but the King James actually has some very significant translation errors in there that aren't really hard, that hard to identify either. But some people go, no, that's it, that's the Bible. God does not speak like that. If you really want to get picky, you, we all need to be sitting here with Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, okay? If we're going to be... And I'm not doing that, all right? I don't get paid enough money to do that. So we have to respect that there are no definitive translations. These things, are, that these even, things are even called translations should clue us up to the idea that it's not handwritten by God from himself, even though that's what some people think. And that brings me to the trickier bit, inspiration and how that actually works. Are the words on those original texts exactly what God wanted conveyed or are they a bit God and a bit man? And again, some people would have you believe that there is absolutely no human element involved in this whatsoever. That people were just instruments of God and they kind of did automatic writing or they were just human versions of some sort of bizarre word processing machine where they only outputted what was inputted 100% by God. Well, if that's the case, then we've got trouble even when we get to the New Testament in 1, 1 Corinthians 7, 40, right? Who believes that Paul was an apostle? Yes? And he wrote most of the New Testament, didn't he? Admittedly, sorry, I don't know why I did that. Um, I, last week I tripped over something too. All right. Do, 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 do. Okay. Um, he wrote most of the New Testament. So we, we accept that he wrote... What he wrote was inspired by God. But in 1 Corinthians 7.40, he's having this discussion about, about whether people should be married or whether people should be single. And in his worldview and understanding, Jesus is about to return anytime soon, right? He really... Isn't it weird? You know, we're in the 21st century and we think Jesus is returning. People have been thinking that since Paul, right? People, Paul, Paul was convinced that in his lifetime, Jesus was going to return. And so the argument is, what if someone's husband dies or their wife dies? Um, you know, should they get remarried? And Paul's point is this, look, there's nothing wrong with getting married. If you can't control yourself, get married, right? It's, it's best thing to do. Um, but my opinion is that really... Try and stay single. Then you can focus on what God wants you to do. And he actually says this in, in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 40. He actually says, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. In other words, I think that what I'm telling you comes from God. I think. What, what do you mean you think? You're writing the Bible, Paul. What do you mean you think? There's a good example of what inspiration looks like. It's how it works. And later on, like to a lesser degree, because it's not on the same level with, with writing what we know to be Scripture, um, when Paul talks about prophecy, he says, you know, people, that prof people have been given this gift of prophecy where they can ostensibly convey the words of God to people. But he puts a caveat on that and he says, we always have to test and weigh what people say, yes? And why do you think we have to weigh and test what people say? Because there's a human element in it, isn't there? It's subject to our own feelings. I mean, you get up and you have a bad day, God's going to sound cranky like you. You know what I mean? Does anyone know that? 
Has anyone also noticed that God often does sound a lot like us anyway? I mean, he wants what we want and he hates the same people we hate, etc., etc., etc. You know, God's voice can sound a lot like our voice. And that's why Paul says, yeah, God speaks through people. But we have to test it and we have to weigh it to make sure we are in fact hearing from God. And again, on an even lesser level, I think a couple of weeks ago I said, you know, I was going to preach a sermon, but today I really felt like God wanted me to preach on this. That doesn't mean that I've turned into the oracle, okay? And I'm delivering to you an unadulterated stream of consciousness thing that God is doing, all right? I'm telling you what I think what God was saying, but I'm saying it in my way, in my language. It's got my inflections all the way through it. It's got my biases, my worldview, all of that type of thing. This is why we say around here, and I mean this, you don't just take my word for it. You don't just take Jacob's word for it. And anyone who gets up here and preaches, you have to test and weigh everything that was said. Even if we preface everything with, I believe God said this to me. You test it because there's humans involved, right? And there were humans involved in writing of the Bible, okay? That doesn't diminish the authority of the Bible, it just demonstrates the very real human element. And while you don't find that sort of admission like you do from Paul um, in the Old Testament, ever, it doesn't mean the authors were 100% uncontaminated. They were just as human and just as located in a particular time and place as everyone else, and as such, were subject to being influenced by their culture, worldview, and personal preferences that they were inspired by God doesn't negate their humanity flavoring what they wrote okay it doesn't change it at all um everything came from their frame of reference and you see that very clearly reflected in in some of the old testament stuff like their cosmology you know there is a dome that separates the waters uh, that are in the heavens from the earth that the earth sits at the center of the universe and everything revolves around that now here's the thing right that made it into the Bible that we clearly know is not true because we are able, unless you're a conspiracy theorist, you know that we have been into space and we know that there's a, you know, the universe is heliocentric, etc. It's our galaxy at least anyway. Okay, you with me? So, so their cosmology is being put in here. If God is only communicating what he wants to communicate it, then God doesn't understand the universe he created. You're with me? But what God did was allow them to put that stuff in, even knowing that technically that's not true. Technically, everything does not revolve around the earth. And there is not a big dome that separates water in the heavens from the earth, etc., etc. So it doesn't mean that people run contaminated, even if they don't admit it. None of this makes it less inspired. It's not a human invention. It is the word of God in the words of men. But we need to take seriously that second part if we are to do better at understanding what God has said and is saying. Second thing I want to say is it is not a book. It is not a book. Some of the analogies we use are very, very unhelpful. It is not a book. It is not God's love letter to you. Okay? It is not basic instructions before leaving earth. Have you heard that one? Okay. What, the problem we have is we try and make it something that it is not. Have you ever noticed how egocentric our view, understanding of the Bible is? Because we think it was written for us in our time and place. That's what we do. And it's not to say that it doesn't speak to us in our time and place. It does. But it was written in very different times and places. And we have to, by the Spirit of God, extrapolate the stuff that we can take out of that for our own benefit. But it is not a book. It is a library of books, 66 in all, very different books, variety of genres, written by a diverse group of people over a very long period of time, 1,500 years. So what you say? Well, for a start, if you ignore the fact that there are different genres, genres, you're going to get something like this. Zach, can you put this up for me, mate? Has anyone read Song of Songs? 
This is the woman described in Song of Songs. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. She has dove eyes. Okay? Your hair is like a flock of goats. Okay? Descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. Okay? What about a flock of seagulls? No. Um, each has its twin. None of them is alone. Uh, your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your eyes are like the halves of a pomegranate. In other words, bloodshot. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with elegance, etc., etc., etc. If you don't understand that you're reading poetry, that's the sort of woman that you're trying to chat up, right? <laughs> now, that's a really obvious, silly example, but you get my point, right? These different genres, we have history, we have narrative, we have allegory, we have parable, we have other things as well. Poetry, poetry, okay? Understanding that helps us understand what God is saying. Otherwise, we end up with that and we also end up with a God who is uh, a giant hen who wants to take his children under his wings. He's a rock, he's a fortress. We have to be able to, to determine what we're dealing with here. But my, my fundy friends would say, so what? There's these different genres. God is the author behind them all. True, the stuff in the Bible is inspired by God. But as per my first point, um, it is written by human beings. And they're involved quite a lot. And a lot of people over a long period of time writing and editing materials that comprise the Bible. So why does that matter? One of my friends was laying out his case for the Bible the other day on Facebook. And he said, people are always trying to tell me that the Bible contains contradictions. I always get them because I say, prove it, show me one, and they can't. To which I said, I can. <laughs> can the Israelites keep their fellow Israelites as slaves? Exodus 21. Yes, and the males can choose freedom after six years. Deuteronomy 15. Yes, but both male and female slaves have the option of freedom. Leviticus 25. No. How can fellow Israelites enslave one another? They can be your hired labour, but don't take them to be slaves. Three different opinions on the one question within two books. Would you consider that a contradiction? Okay. Can Israelites eat the carcasses of mauled animals? I know you lay awake at night worrying about this. <laughs> Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 14. No, you're holy and that's disgusting. Leviticus 11. Sure. But you'll be unclean till evening. Make sure to wash your clothes. Okay. Can a man have relations with a woman during her cycle? Leviticus 15. Okay, but if you do, you and every bed you lie on will be unclean for seven days. Leviticus 20. Absolutely not. And no seven-day timeouts either. You and the woman will be cut off, which meant to be either excommunicated or executed. Because, listen to this, this sort of thing is no different than having relations with your sister or your aunt. Okay, so you get my point. You ask a question, you ask, what does the Bible teach about this? Well, in the case of just two books, ostensibly written by, not just inspired by God, but written by the same person, as some people would argue, Moses, okay, you've got, on one hand, this, and then, but no, and then maybe, and so on, and so on, and so on. There's more, but you get my point. You could also put First and Second Samuel right next to each other, and right next to First and Second Chronicles, because they actually tell exactly the same story but they tell two very different stories. 
So if you want to test that out one day, do it. Read First and Second Samuel and then read First and Second Chronicles. You'll see the same story but with very, very different stories and different outcomes all the way through. You could take a 33,000 um, foot view and see how Leviticus and Deuteronomy forbid the inclusions of eunuchs in the people of God until we get to Isaiah where Isaiah prophesies that there is a special place within the people of God for eunuchs. Okay. And we're not even... Um, Nahum... Nahum rejoices over Assyria's judgment. Nahum doesn't just rejoice over Assyria's judgment. He gloats about it and he says, the whole world is laughing at you, Assyria. You were so cruel to us and now God has destroyed you. But then only a little while later we read Jonah where God is saying, I love these people and I want them to repent and be redeemed. Which is it? We're not even touching on the New Testament and some of the big shifts going on there. Now, if all the people who are writing this stuff have no choice but to write exactly what God is telling them to write, then what we have is actually a contradiction, yes? Because if the same person is the one actually doing it, who says one thing here and then one thing there, that's actually a contradiction. So what do you do with those contradictions? Well, there are, there are three ninja moves that people have to get out of this. The first is to go, it's an apparent contradiction. <laughs> like I'm apparently standing here today. Let's just cross that one out, okay? Secondly, when we get to heaven, it'll all be <laughs> explained. Okay? Thirdly, and this is my favourite, because this is like, this is the fail-safe option. You just ignore it. Just don't even engage with that at all. Just tell people they're being faithless by pointing those things out. But listen, it's only a contradiction if we assume that inspiration negates the diverse and various human voices, which I don't believe that it does. And acknowledging that stuff doesn't diminish the inspiration or authority of the Bible. It's being faithful to what the Bible actually is, the Word of God in the words of men, written over multiple centuries by different people in different genres. And the Bible itself never tries to hide that fact. So what do we do with those things? Well, since God doesn't change or contradict himself, then the best option for us is to accept that it is our understanding of God that is changing. With me on that? God is not changing his mind. Because there is this human element involved in the writing of Scripture and conveying what they really genuinely are believing to be the way and the will of God. As we see these changes, what we're seeing is the way people are growing in their understanding of this God they claim to belong to. And their, their belief is, and I know this is a word you can't mention in Christian circles, evolving, okay, in the way that they understand God, what, what He's like and what He's about. And if you don't like the idea that God people's ideas about God are developing you're going to hate my final point here because I think we need to read it as intended and what I mean by that is this if you want people to get what you're like and what you're on about as precisely as possible although it's always still open to misinterpretation but in, a, in, in about the clearest possible way you could do it what would you do you would turn up yourself wouldn't you yeah you wouldn't write letters, you wouldn't get other people to write letters, you would turn up yourself. And that is exactly what God did in Jesus. And we have this verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, and it says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So God has been speaking to us all this time. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through him also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us 
is that God has been giving this self-revelation for centuries through prophets, through writings, through, through everything. But in these last days, he's given his most ultimate and final revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you want to know what I'm like, if you want to know what I'm about, this is it. I've turned up in the flesh. So Jesus is the final word on God, about the word of God, because Jesus is the living word of God. Are you with me? The written word of God must always conform to the living word of God. You hear that? So when we talk about how do we interpret the scriptures like this, we interpret the scriptures through the lens of the life and the teaching and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's how we interpret the Bible. Let me put this quote up here. It's a long quote, but I think it explains it really well. Zach, could you pop that quote up there for me, mate? The Bible is not the perfect revelation of God. Jesus is. Jesus is the only perfect theology. Perfect theology is not a system of theology. Perfect theology is a person. Perfect theology is not found in abstract thought. Perfect theology is found in the incarnation. Perfect theology is not a book. Perfect theology is the life that Jesus lived. What the Bible does infallibly and inerrantly is to point us to Jesus. Okay, did you hear that? What the Bible does better than anything else is to constantly point us to Jesus. I said at the beginning, we all interpret the Bible. The only question is how. As far as the Bible itself is concerned, there is only one way to interpret, and that is through the lens of Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection. We must interpret and apply everything through his life, ministry, teaching, death, and resurrection. A while ago, I was... um, if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, you would have seen that I was absolutely mortified that a very, very well-known Christian leader had liked a, a tweet by a certain president of a certain country that shall remain nameless, um, who was threatening to obliterate another country. And so when I saw that this well-known Christian leader had liked that tweet, I just, I was like, how do you do that? This man is threatening to annihilate people, to kill thousands of people and you like that how on earth do you justify that now here's where it gets some of my conservative friends and i disagree this is where we start to get selective about our interpretation of scripture because we could go all old testament and even revelation in this couldn't we and we could go god always ends up smiting his enemies if they don't fall into line right and there are proof texts all over the place for that but here's a case in point right This is where we need to interpret that through the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, yes? And what does Jesus say about how we're to treat our enemies? Love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. Where did he change his mind on that? Nowhere. So if we're going to read the Old Testament, I have to read it through that lens. I have to go, I don't care how belligerent that country is being, There is no excuse for trying to obliterate them. Because if we're committed to following Jesus, I can't support that because Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. Now again, people could argue, well, that's fine on a personal level, but at a state level, it doesn't work. You know what? I think being a peacemaker goes a lot further. Yeah? And to be honest, if we had more women in power, we might have less wars as far as I'm concerned. All right? I'm a feminist. 
No, because men get into competitions with one another. Don't we, men? Anyway, he says as Nazi's like, yeah, right. Okay, I've got a padded jacket on, Nazi. I look as big as you today. All right. <laughs> you and me at a place to be determined. All right. All right. <laughs> Or if I'm a bit, I've got a sore leg, so I'll send a proxy. Um, Darren, Darren's going to show up. Uh, anyway, listen, we're getting off point. Stop. I want to finish. I want to. I want to finish this. Okay. Because then people say, okay, well, let's not use the Old Testament. Let's use Revelation. Because who's read Revelation? There's a weird book, right? Apocalyptic literature. Okay, that's a genre I left out. That's even stranger. Ezekiel, Daniel, all of that sort of stuff has to be read a certain way, um, and not after you've had a drink. But it's. So there's some really strange stuff in there, okay? But you see at the end, there's wars and mayhem and, you know, God seems to be smiting a whole lot of people, doesn't he? You know, like, so you go, okay, well, there it is. At the end of days, Jesus is just going to go Old Testament on people anyway, so why not do it now? The problem is that's a complete misreading of Revelation. That doesn't happen at all. When John is looking around for the seal, someone to open the seals that are going to unleash these, this judgment on earth, he says, I, I cried because no one was worthy and someone said, no, hang on a second, look, there's the Lion of Judah. And that's a great metaphor for some, from war, isn't it? The Lion of Judah, right? And so John turns around to see this Lion of Judah. Instead, he sees a lamb that has been slaughtered. And what John is telling us in that is, yeah, Jesus is going to overcome, not through might or by power, but through his own redeeming sacrifice. You with me? So where's the violence gone? Even when he is the rider on the white horse and he's covered in blood and there is a sword coming out of his mouth. And again, apocalyptic literature, he doesn't literally have a sword coming out of his mouth. It's a metaphor, okay? With a sword coming out of his mouth, that sword is what? The Word of God. So Jesus isn't going Old Testament in Revelation. Revelation is that the beast wants to overthrow everything and his way is through war and aggression and all of that sort of stuff. But the way of the lamb is through his redeeming sacrifice and through love and through mercy and forgiveness and through the word. There is no taking up arms in Revelation. We should go through Revelation like just have a, have a, like a, um, a, like a Netflix binge on Revelation. We'll just... <laughs> We'll just stay here and I'll go through all 22 chapters, right? Um, yeah, Darren wants to do it. Darren's going to be... Me and Darren, okay. All right. <laughs> so anyway, are, are you starting to get my point? Okay, you, you can't interpret... Because it just doesn't make sense. God turns up in person. And as Jesus, he says things like, love your enemies, bless those who persecute. He shows nothing but love. On the cross, he could get down, he could call a legion of angels to take him off that cross, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, Father, forgive them. This is the man that has, through his teaching and through his example, has set the ultimate expression of non-violence. Yes? Okay? Non-violence. And he still wins. So why, after doing that, when we get to the end of human history, does he decide, I'm not going to do that anymore, and I'm just going to go ballistic on you? It's inconsistent with his character. He is the ultimate revelation of a God who is love. 
And that love is powerful enough to overcome. Yes, it is. The worst people and the strongest resistance, that love is powerful enough to overcome. So when we read the Bible, we must read it through the lens of that man-God, that God-man, Jesus. Amen? All right, I'm going to finish because I'm rambling on now. But anyway, my point is this, that we need to read the written Word of God through the living Word of God. We don't, we don't need to see that there is just this binary idea out there. We don't need to buy into the idea that there's just this binary idea out there. You either believe the Bible or you don't. You either accept its authority or you don't. We need to have a more nuanced approach that says we read it for what it is. We read it the way it was intended because it is actually more nuanced than that. And being faithful to the Bible is being faithful to what it actually is, not what we've tried to make it out to be or have been told by some. And it's reading, interpreting and applying it through the lens of Jesus, not some theological system or through some teacher we happen to admire through him it takes work it takes prayer it takes community to do it but we are committed to that amen all right i'm gonna here endeth the message oh that's that's disappointing i said to someone this morning hey do you want to watch me blow myself up this morning um and she did thank you liz um anyway you know where I'm coming from in this, guys. I love the Bible. I just think it's been hijacked by people who have done bad things to it. And I want to reclaim the central message of the Bible. I want to reclaim the teachings of the Bible because I think it's mission critical. And, and I think what we've got to share is better news than we've ever been led to imagine. Amen? So that's, that's it. I want to reclaim it from the people who are making it into this blunt instrument to just bludgeon people um, and make it into the life, help bring it back to be the life-giving thing that it actually is. That's my passion, all right? We're going to take communion now and we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus came and just to demonstrate to us what God is actually like and sit and soak in that for a little while um, and we'll get the worship team up here and then we'll go for coffee. Thank you.